0: Well, I want you to imagine two tomato plants. Okay, you all know what tomato plants are? Two tomato plants. And let's say that one tomato plant you gave water to on a regular basis, which is a good thing, but the other tomato plant, you didn't just give water, but you gave water mixed with liquid fertilizer that's full of vitamins and minerals and nitrogen and phosphates and all those good things that plants love. So, if you gave one water and you gave the other liquid fertilizer, what would happen to the one you gave the liquid fertilizer to? It would flourish and grow and thrive, and there'd be lots of tomatoes. It'd be an amazing thing. Now, why do I tell you that? It's because you may not have known this, but your Christian life is like a tomato plant. And God has given us liquid fertilizer which, if we will use it, will cause our lives as Christians to thrive and to flourish and to grow and to bear much fruit. And what that liquid fertilizer is, is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our treasure. Because when we see in the scriptures the truth of Jesus, and when we pray over those truths and we feel the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who Jesus is enters into our soul so we trust him and we love him when we pour the truth of Jesus into our lives we do thrive and flourish our faith is strengthened temptations do lose their power heartbreak is comforted Weakness is established, strengthened, built up. In every way, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which we study in God's Word, strengthens, builds us up, meets our needs, and helps us. And the reason I mention that is because in this next section of Luke, we're going through Luke's story of Jesus' birth. And in this next section in Luke, one of his main purposes is to give us clear knowledge of Jesus Christ who he is, and what he's done, and what he's going to do. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 80, a big chunk this morning. So get your seatbelts on. We're going to be moving. Now last week, for those of you who weren't here, or to re- remind all of us, in verses 1 through 25, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth who are well past childbearing years, probably their 80s, their 90s, maybe even over 100, well past their childbearing years. And the angel Gabriel is personally sent from God to Zechariah to tell Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to get pregnant, and Elizabeth's going to give birth to a son, name him John, and he is The prophet that the Old Testament foretold who would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. Well, just as the angel said, Elizabeth got pregnant. And that's where we ended the story last week. Now today, starting in verse 26, that same angel, Gabriel, is sent from the presence of God to Mary in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And the angel tells Mary something shocking, that though she's a virgin, she will, as a virgin, get pregnant and give birth to Jesus. And in this first section we'll be looking at, verses 26 through 38, the angel tells Mary who Jesus will be. So let's start with that question. Who does the angel say Jesus will be? Start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here we are introduced to Mary. Mary is a virgin betrothed, which means she was engaged to be married to Joseph. Now, of course, because Mary was a virgin... Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. He wasn't physically Jesus' father, but because Joseph took Jesus in as part of his family, Joseph was legally Jesus' father. And so Jesus legally was in the line of David, which will be very important. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now keep reading in verse 28. And he, Gabriel, the angel, came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There it is, the connection to King David. And he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this would have absolutely shocked Mary to hear. And the reason is because Mary was thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And for example, she would have read what Isaiah wrote in his prophecy 700 years before this time when the angel's talking to her. She would have read Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what Isaiah said. For to us a child is born. So Mary would have known the Messiah is going to be born as a child from Isaiah's prophecy. A child will be born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, underline those words, Mighty God, he's going to be fully God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this now this would have helped Mary understand that the Messiah was going to be born as a baby the Messiah was going to be named mighty God which meant that even though he was born as a baby he would be fully God and that the Messiah would be a king in the line of David whose rule would never end. So think of how shocked Mary would have been when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby. He will be the son of the Most High, which means he is fully God, and he will be a king in the line of David. In other words, the angel is saying to Mary, your baby will be the Messiah. And that would have just thrilled her and shocked her because for centuries the people of Israel had been praying for the Messiah and longing for the Messiah and hoping for the coming of the Messiah. And now an angel comes to you and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. So she would have been shocked. But of course, this is an angel talking to her. This is the angel Gabriel, Gabriel sent from the very presence of God. So she believed him. I mean, he's an angel from God. But her one question was, I'm a virgin. How am I going to be pregnant as a virgin? So she asks him, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary is going to become pregnant without any involvement from Joseph. The power of God is going to miraculously and supernaturally have her become pregnant. So Jesus is going to be the Son of God and the Son of Mary. In other words, fully God, 100% God, and fully man. And this is a truth that Luke wants us to understand in terms of liquid fertilizer to strengthen our tomato plant Christian lives. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now, let me give you two ways that this can impact us. Think about the fact that Jesus, even though he is fully God, he's also fully man, that God became man. Think about what that means. What this means is that Jesus experienced Weakness and weariness and tiredness. Jesus experienced heartbreak and troubledness and sorrow. We read about Gethsemane, for example. Jesus experienced, the book of Hebrews tells us, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus felt these things, experienced these things, knew these things. So here's what this means. When you are weary and you turn to Jesus in your weariness, he doesn't say, get over it. He says, I understand. That's not easy, but I will strengthen you. That's what he says. Or when you turn to Jesus in sorrow and heart trouble, he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He says, I know. That's hard. I will comfort you. That's what he says. Or when you turn to Jesus in in times of temptation, you know, temptation can be so strong and so powerful in pulling you away from Jesus. And when we come to Jesus and we say, I'm being tempted, he doesn't say, oh, come on. It's not what he says. He says, I remember. Temptation is difficult. I will strengthen and help you. This is life-changing. Just pour that truth of Jesus out upon you right now. God became a man, and in Jesus, God has experienced everything that we experience. He's been tempted in every way that we are, except without sin. So he was fully man, but it's also a powerful truth for us that he was fully God. Jesus wasn't one-third of God, He was fully God, just as the Father is fully God and the Spirit is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Paul says in Colossians, the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. Jesus is fully God. And because he's fully God, that means that he wasn't just a man dying for our sins. That wouldn't have accomplished much. It meant that in Jesus God, lowered himself from the glories of heaven, lowered, 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 lowered lowered to become a man, and then went to the cross, the scourging, the beating, the nails, the agony on the cross, and he died a criminal's death. And that infinite lowering, that infinite penalty and punishment was sufficient to pay for the infinite wickedness of our sin because we have dishonored an infinitely glorious God. And so Jesus as God dying on the cross means that all of my sins can be paid for. All of my punishment was poured out upon him. No punishment is left for me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am completely forgiven and spotless and blameless before God through Jesus. So let that strengthen your spiritual life. Jesus is fully man. He's experienced the same things you have, and He loves you, and He cares about you, and He will always help you. And Jesus is fully God. His death paid an infinite price for sin because our sin was infinitely wicked and needed to be paid for. Keep reading in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, Gabriel is still talking to Mary, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary completely trusts and submits to God's will for her life. Okay, so that's Luke telling us who Jesus is. Now verses 39 through 45. And as I read through those verses, what I noticed Luke emphasizing is how both Elizabeth and little baby John responded to Jesus. So why would Luke emphasize this? I think it's because he wants to help us understand this is how we should respond to Jesus. So look what happens. Start in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So this reunion here between Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth came to my ears. The baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed, talking about Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, so Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. She speaks blessing over Mary, and she speaks blessing over Mary's child, the baby Jesus. But notice, do you catch what Elizabeth says to Mary verse 41, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. So probably what she is speaking here is like a prophetic word. And notice in verse 43 that she says, Mary is the mother of my Lord. Now this is astonishing because in Luke's gospel, the word Lord, when it applies to Jesus, always points to him being the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He's God in the flesh and so what Elizabeth is saying is that Mary you are the mother of my Lord You are the mother of my God the the baby in your womb is my Lord and God that's what Elizabeth is saying And the fact that she says this with a loud voice shows that she's filled with joy about this Behold the mother of my Lord is here She's thrilled about this baby who's going to be born to Elizabeth that's how Elizabeth responds. Now, what about little baby John in Elizabeth's womb? This is so interesting. How does John respond? Verse 41, when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, little baby John leaps in her womb. Okay? And verse 44 shows us why he leaps. He leaps for joy. Do you see that? So even as a baby in the womb... John knows in some way Jesus is the Messiah. He is fully God. He is fully man. And so John leaps for joy in who Jesus is. And so do you see how Luke emphasizes here both Elizabeth's response of joy, the mother of my Lord, and John responds with joy, leaping for joy. And what what Luke wants us to understand is that it is a great joy, a great joy to know Jesus Christ as your Messiah, as your Lord, as your God. It is a great joy. This is a huge truth about Jesus, to pour onto your life so that you'll flourish. Now, I was just praying about, so Lord, how do, how do we here at Grace Church, how do those, these folks who are going to be here Friday morning, how do we need to hear this? And I thought of two ways. Some of you need to hear this the fact that there's great joy in knowing Jesus is our Messiah. Some of you need to hear this because you've given up on joy. Or maybe you're close to giving up on joy. You've been disappointed so many times with people. You've been disappointed with bosses. You've been disappointed with vacations. You've been disappointed with relationships. You've been disappointed so many times that you're becoming hard and cynical and close to just giving up on on joy. But see, what Luke would tell you is that the joy you are looking for is not found in people or bosses. It's not found in relationships. It's not found in vacations. The joy you're looking for is only found in knowing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, your Savior, your Lord, your treasure. So don't give up on joy. The problem isn't that there's no joy. The problem is you've been looking in the wrong places. That joy you're looking for is in Jesus. You'll be leaping like John and exclaiming like Elizabeth when you meet Jesus. That's one way this affects us. Another way as I prayed about this, I, I think some, some of us here, I don't know personally, but I would guess that some of us are in danger of just going through the motions of Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, you're, you're going to church. Here you are, right? You're here. It's Friday. You're here in this country. All right? You, you, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to live the way a Christian's supposed to live. I mean, you're, 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 you're trying to be a Christian. But if you were honest, there's no joy in it. There's no joy in knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, walking with Jesus. You're going through the motions, but there's no joy. And and Luke would want you to know, he would say this with love, but he would say, that's not Christianity. And it's a dangerous place to be going through the motions of Christianity without any joy. Because Christianity is seeing the truth of Jesus. And it's feeling the truth of Jesus. And so what I would encourage you to do and what Luke would encourage you to do is, is get time where you, you open up the scriptures and you kneel down by your bed or at your kitchen table and you, you pray over the truth of who Jesus Christ is and you trust the truth of who Jesus Christ is until your joy in Him is restored and renewed like when you first met Him so that your heart is filled, so that your heart is satisfied and you know Him you're not just going through the motions but you know Jesus you're not just trying hard to obey but you are rejoicing in Jesus so that's a truth that Luke wants us to understand and that is the way that we respond to Jesus when we really know him is with joy because he is our joy now that brings us to verses 46 and 56 and as I studied these verses. Now, this is called the Magnificat. If you want the technical, some of your Bibles may have that in the heading. And the reason it's called the Magnificat is that here's Mary giving just a beautiful statement of praise to who God is and what he's done. But the first word in the Magnificat in the Latin version, for you Latin experts, you'll know this, it's the Latin word Magnificat, which means something about magnify, right? You can figure that out. So that's verses 46 56 and as I as I read this through and just said, okay, what is Mary emphasizing here? What she's emphasizing is why God blesses us with the Messiah. So let's read this and have that question we have in our in our mind Why does God bless us with the Messiah? Look at what Mary says and but before we look at what, he, what she says Let me just frame it this way. Does she say that God blesses us with the Messiah because of how spiritually strong we are because of how together we are, because of how righteous and holy and good we are? Um, No. That's not the reason why. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's looked on my lowly position, my needy position. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty, he's the mighty one, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So did God do great things for Mary because she was so exalted? No, she was humble and lowly. Okay, now, if, if she was so humble and lowly and needy, why would he do great things for her? Verse 50, and his mercy. There's the answer, mercy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, there's that word again, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So why does God bless Mary and us with the Messiah? It's because of God's mercy. God's mercy means that he loves doing amazingly good things for undeserving, weak, unworthy people. This is the best news in the world. Think about this. How many of you this morning feel, don't raise your hand, but feel weak and undeserving and unworthy and not so spiritual? See, the Bible's answer to you isn't, You should understand, you really are strong. You really are worthy. You really are spiritual. That's not the Bible's answer to that. The Bible's answer to that is, you know, you are more weak than you know. You are more unworthy and undeserving than you know. You are more needy than you know. But here's the good news. God delights to do amazing good for needy, undeserving people. God's kind of like a magnet, okay? And just like a magnet is drawn towards iron filing. So God is drawn towards the needy. He's drawn towards the weak. Anybody who will acknowledge, I'm weak, I'm needy, I'm unworthy, I'm deserving, God help me. God's like moving towards you with everything that you need every time. Because God delights to do amazing good to completely undeserving, weak, needy, unworthy people like us. Now, What will Jesus do for us? That's verses 56 through 80, the last section. Now, these verses are about John the Baptist's birth, but I I hope you'll see what I saw, and that is that what Luke highlights here in telling about John the Baptist's birth is what Jesus is going to do. So start with verse 56. And Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. She's in her 80s, she's in her 90s, she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, there it is again, mercy, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, Zechariah hasn't spoken since he left the temple, right? He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his, Zechariah's, mouth was opened and his tongue loosed And he spoke, Blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So did you catch two miracles taking place here? Elizabeth gives birth to a child. That's a miracle because she's well past childbearing years. And Zechariah, who hasn't talked for months since leaving the temple, all of a sudden starts to speak, Blessing God. Verse 67, keep going. Zechariah, we see, now he's filled with the Spirit and he starts to prophesy. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. Underline those words. Raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, From of old. What does horn of salvation mean? The word horn is a metaphor. Think about like a rhinoceros horn, a big strong horn, or like a big bull or oxen's horns, right? Big long horns. A horn is a metaphor. It's a picture of power and strength. And so many times in the Old Testament, I don't think it's used in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, the the phrase horn is used to describe something of power. So horn of salvation, that's who... Jesus is going to be means that Jesus' salvation is powerful, which is it's powerful enough to forgive all of your sins through his death on the cross. It's powerful enough to change the most rebellious heart, to give the most hard heart repentance and faith. It's powerful enough to keep us wayward people on the road to heaven all the way to the end. It's powerful enough to save us, to continue, and to bring us to glory. It's powerful enough to raise us from the dead. It's powerful, the horn of salvation. Keep reading in verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now he speaks to John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, Lord Jesus, to prepare his way to give, I get this, knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. There it is. John is going to tell people forgiveness of sins is available. He's going to give the knowledge of salvation, which consists in the forgiveness of sins. So John gives knowledge of forgiveness of sins. Jesus, when he comes, he accomplishes forgiveness of sins. And so what Jesus says to people is, I've paid for the sins of all who will turn to me and trust me. I've paid for all the sins of all who will come to me and ask for forgiveness. That's what he's done. And then what will we receive when our sins are forgiven? Keep reading verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, you should go through this passage and circle all the time as the word mercy shows up. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, that's Jesus, picture of Jesus, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So because of forgiveness of sins, Jesus does two things. He gives light to those who are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. That's the first thing. And then secondly, He guides our feet into the path of peace. Now let me just apply this to, to all of us here. He gives light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. I would guess if some of you were honest this morning, you would say that what's in your heart is darkness. And you feel like, yeah, shadow of death, that's probably a pretty good description. Not that you can't see light. The lights are on here. You can go outside and see the the sunlight. Not that you can't see physical light, but in your heart, there's darkness. In your heart, there's the shadow of death because you've turned away from God. And whenever we turn away from God, God is our light. Whenever we turn away from God, we are plunged into darkness and a shadow of death. And so if your heart is, yeah, it's, it's dark and it's like shadow of death, it's because you've turned away from God. But see, because of forgiveness of sins, because Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, when you turn to Him and when you trust Him, He will shine light into your heart. Not physical light, but this light that you will see and feel and know, and you'll be filled, and you'll be set free from the shadow of death and set free from that darkness. So because of forgiveness, Jesus will give you light. That's the first thing. And then secondly, because of forgiveness, He will guide your way, your feet, into the way of peace. As I was praying about this, I think probably some of us uh, have been drifting away from Jesus, drifting towards sin. And, and the way you can tell you've been drifting towards sin is because your peace has been diminishing. Isn't that what happens? The farther we drift from Jesus, the less peace we feel in our hearts. The more anxieties and insecurities and tumults and lack of settledness, the farther we drift from Jesus, the greater our worry and fear and insecurity grows and the less peace we have. But see, here's the good news. Because of forgiveness, Jesus can take you and he can guide your feet into the way of peace. And he will guide you. He will direct you. He will help you. He will bring you back into his way and you will feel and experience peace once again. And the reason he can do that is because of what he says here, forgiveness of sins. So here's my encouragement to you. See who Jesus Christ is. See who Luke describes him as being here. And, and turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin to Jesus and trust him. Trust him to forgive you. He will completely forgive you. Trust him to change you. His power will change you. And trust him to fill and satisfy your heart with his joy. And he will fill satisfy your heart with joy. You can do that right now. Trust him right now. That's my encouragement to you Now let's let's move into communion the reason we're doing communion at the end of our service today was because this passage ending on that note of forgiveness of sins is a perfect lead-in to communion and Jesus established communion 2,000 years ago as a practice that his followers would regularly come together and, and think believers do this all over the world from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Believers gather together, and they partake of bread, which is a picture of Jesus' broken body on the cross. And they drink the cup, which is a picture of his shed blood. And they do this to remember Jesus. So Jesus has established communion as a time to remind us, to remind us, to strip into our hearts. Yes, Jesus, you died. Yes, you have paid for my sins. Yes, I can be completely forgiven. Yes, you paid the punishment. Yes, my sin deserves punishment. Yes, I want to not sin anymore. Yes, I'm going to give my life afresh to you. Yes, yes, yes. That's what should be just resounding in our hearts as we partake of communion together today. Now, if you're not yet trusting Jesus, we are really, really glad you're here. And so, what should you do during this time? What would be best for you, instead of coming forward and taking communion, be best for you just to take some time and to think deeply about who is Jesus? What have you heard here? Think about the fact that Jesus fulfilled numerous prophecies from hundreds of years earlier, given in the Old Testament. He fulfilled them in his coming, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And think about the truth of you and your emptiness and your lack of peace, and that you know deep down inside there's a God, and you know you've been turning from Him, and He has His arms open wide to you if you will admit your need, your unworthiness, that you don't deserve what He has for you. He has His arms open wide, and He will pour out everything upon you that you need in Christ. Forgiveness, new heart, new life, He will do that. So think about that. But now for the rest of us, here's what we're going to do. Let's have the worship team coming up. For the rest of us, we're going to sing two more songs just to set our hearts upon the Lord Jesus and who He is. And during those two songs, come on forward, come down the center aisle, and then go on both sides of the table just to keep the traffic flowing smoothly. So come down the center aisle, and then go back out that far left, your, your right-hand side aisle, OK? <clears throat> so which aisle do you come down? The center aisle. Do you go back up the center aisle afterwards? No, traffic jam, OK? Come down the center aisle. Both sides of the table, and then go back that side, and we can filter back in here. But again, Jesus said this is a time to remember his death. And so as we are worshiping, as we are coming forward to take the bread and the cup, as we go back to our seats, let's as a people remember Jesus' death. Remember Jesus, fully God, fully man, came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. All of my guilt paid for in Jesus' By faith alone in Christ alone, I am free. Sin's guilt has been paid. Sin's power has been broken. I am free. I am free. I am free. So as we're pondering these things, as we're walking forward, taking the bread and the cup, singing these worship songs, remember Jesus' death. And at the same time, let the Lord convict you of any sin that you're holding on to and let it go. Let it go this morning. And let it stir you. I want to live for your glory. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to live for your glory. So Father, come and move upon us right now, I pray. You want us to do this so we will remember Jesus' death. So would you come right now and let this be a time where we remember and we think deeply and we feel deeply what Jesus did for us on the cross. Convict us of sin. If there's sin we're holding on to that we're not letting go, Lord, right now by the power of your Spirit, convict us and don't let us continue to hold on to it. Please change our hearts, Lord. Or those who are struggling with feeling guilty, even though they've trusted you and they're trusting you, Lord, show them the cross. Free that guilt from them. Pour out your assurance upon them, we pray. Come and do a mighty work now, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name.